In our evening series over the summer, we're going to be looking um, a part of the book of Acts, and we're going to turn to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 16, which you can find on page 1112. And we're going to read from verses 1 to 40. Tom Rainey is going to read the first part of the chapter, and then straight after, Ian McKibben will read the second part of the chapter. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. On the next day, we went on to Naples. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in pure cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept us up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept and to practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into a prison, and the jailer commanded, guard, sorry, commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in an inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas, he then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men, the jailer told Paul. The magistrates 
had ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us pub publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were, or no, sorry, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them, then they left. Good evening and uh, welcome to our evening service here at Bloomfield tonight. Uh, can I encourage you to grab a, a Bible and we're in Acts chapter 16 this evening and we're looking at verses 11 to 40. So it's on page 1110 or 111. So let me just give you a moment to, to do that. And let me pray for us as we come uh, to Acts chapter 16 this evening. Father, tonight we've been singing that you're a mighty God who saves, that, Father, salvation belongs to you, and, Father, they are heartwarming hymns we've been singing, and, Father, we pray tonight as we come around a passage that helps us to understand how salvation impacts lives and cities and culture. We pray, Lord, for your help to understand your word. We pray for that help to apply it tonight, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do you ever wonder if the gospel can really change people's lives? Do you ever have those doubts when you think the gospel could never reach that person or change that culture or have any impact on a city or a town? Because the passage before you tonight highlights two things for us. It tells us in broad strokes that the gospel changes people. But it also tells us that gospel change can often be followed by both positive and negative reactions. So two things. The gospel changes people. You can see that clearly tonight, and we'll look at it a bit more in a minute, how the gospel changes people. But also you see how gospel change brings about both a positive and a negative reaction when that happens. And tonight I want to see that played out as we look at Acts 16, and particularly in the city of Philippi, and you saw last week with the city of Philippi that this Paul, St. Paul, had a great vision of a man standing and begging him. Do you remember the words he said? Come to Macedonia and help us. And so Paul and his companions, in reply to the vision, go from Troas and Ceylon till they hit these different places until eventually they end up in Philippi in the region of Macedonia. And you can see these mapped out on the map in front of you. Macedonia, this region, was broken into four districts, and Philippi was one of the leading cities in one of those districts. Philippi was a prosperous city with trade coming in and out of it regularly. It was as and as verse 12 says, have a look, it says it was a Roman colony, which means the city was part of the Roman Empire, and so under Roman law and governance. It would have been a city whose religions consisted of numerous gods of varying sorts, and people worshipped their different gods. It also was a haven for retired veterans from the Roman army. And that will maybe make more sense as we look at the Roman jailer later on in the passage. And we're told in this city 
that Paul came to with his companions in verse 13, that on the Sabbath day, do you see it there? Paul and his friends went outside the city gate to the river where they expected to find a place of prayer. Paul's usual practice, if you follow these missionary journeys, was not to go to some place of prayer, but rather straight into the synagogues and preach Christ there. But here it seems in Philippi that there was no recognized synagogue there at this time. He needed about 10 men to establish a synagogue at the time. Instead, there's a place of prayer where people gather to pray. And over time in Philippi, Paul and his companions probably saw many converts to Christ in the city. And three of them are recorded here in Acts 16 for us tonight. And the first, I want to look at these three individuals. The first is the businesswoman called Lydia, verses 11 to 15. Look at the details surrounding this woman. Lydia was from the city of Thyatira, which I see on the map with a little arrow again in the center. This is where she was from. And Thyatira was famous for cloth and dyes. And so Lydia, was to- we're told in the verse, was a dealer in purple cloth, which would have been expensive cloth. She was also, the little detail about her is that, a God-fearing Gentile. Even though she was not a Jew herself, she had some understanding or knowledge of God and what it was that he required of her. Verse 14, do you see the lovely detail of it? She was listening to Paul as he spoke. And the word for listening here is that she was really engaged, attentive to what was being spoken. And in verse 15, you have this lovely little phrase, don't you? Do you see it? The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So here is a wealthy, successful businesswoman who dealt in expensive cloth, who had some sort of fear of God. And as Paul explained the good news about Jesus Christ to her, the Lord opened her heart to respond. What a wonderfully simple, yet profoundly difficult thing to understand. This woman was hearing the gospel proclaimed by Paul, listening intently to him, and yet the Lord had to open her heart for her to receive the message. And I suppose this is God's same pattern, isn't it? The way he works usually today, isn't it? That God uses people to tell the good news of Jesus to others, whether it's in your school or university or workplace, at the sports club, among friends and family. He uses individuals like you and I. And how do they respond? Well, some don't agree, do they? Others need more time to get their head around, who is this Jesus? What is Christianity about? Others are hostile. I don't want to hear this message about Jesus or your religion or your church stuff. Still others respond by coming to faith. But we need to keep in mind that the response of obedience and faith is God's work. It is God's work in somebody's life, making them responsive to him. The Lord needs, doesn't he, to open up each of our hearts to the message of Jesus. The work of conversion is a work of God in a person's life and heart. And I'm sure you found this to be true with family and friends to whom you've spoken to on numerous occasions, maybe about the Lord Jesus. Maybe they haven't changed their heart or an attitude change hasn't happened for them. Why? The Lord needs to open their hearts to receive the message. John Stott in his commentary on Acts says the following, which is particularly helpful. He says this, although the message was Paul's, the saving initiative was God's. 
Paul's preaching was not effective in itself. The Lord worked through it, and the Lord's work was not in itself direct. He chose to work through Paul's preaching, and it's the same, always the same. Paul had to speak the words of Jesus about the good news, yet God used those words to open her heart and her life. Folks, tonight we should be encouraged as you share the gospel message tomorrow in your particular context, whether that's been on holidays, whether it's in school or university, whether it's at work on a daily basis, whether it's at your social outling, people like you and I tell others about Jesus Christ, but it is God's initiative in saving and opening up hearts and lives to himself. Can I encourage you to do one thing over this coming week with this in mind? Pray for God to open hearts of family and friends. Who? Pick one. Pick one colleague at work, one friend that you've known for a few years, some lad at the gym that you rub shoulders with, some family friend, whoever it is, and say to yourself, Lord, would you open his heart to receive the message of Christ? Because that's what God does. He opens our hearts. And for Lydia, this moment in her life was a changing point. We're told in verse 15, do you see it there? That she and her members of her house were baptized, a sign of new birth and forgiveness. And I love the next part. She says to Paul, which I, I, I love this part. She says, invites Paul and says to him, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. All right. And she wasn't taking no for an answer. Do you see the little line at the end? She persuaded them to come. Instant, isn't it? Paul shared the message. She says to him, if you consider me a believer in the Lord Jesus, come, come to my house, share a meal with me. Very little fruit seen there, but an instant reply, and Paul goes. So here was an influential woman, woman of means, coming to faith, being baptized with her whole household, and enjoying a meal with those who had shared the gospel with her. What a beginning this is in Philippi for the gospel and for God's church in this major city. But let's see the contrast. The next person at Philippi, do you see it there in verses 16 onwards, couldn't be more opposite to Lydia and her circumstances. The female slave, see it there in verse 16? This female slave is described well by these lovely phrases from some commentators. She says this, she owned nothing, not even herself, and she controlled nothing. How true this is of the slave girl. See it here before you? We're told in verse 16 that she had a spirit in her by which she predicted the future. She was demon-possessed. And this ability that she had meant that her owners used this to make money out of her. She owned nothing, not even herself. Slaves had very little rights in those days. The owners owned her literally. And they were making money or spawns from her, if you want to put it that way, from fortune telling. One imagines that people came to her owners and they agreed a price from them to see what the future held for them in different circumstances. And this slave woman, do you see it? Crosses paths with, with Paul and his companions as they were going again to the place of prayer. And in verse 17, it says, she followed Paul and others shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. And in verse 18, it says, 
She did this for several days. So imagine the scene. Imagine a summer mission where you're in some town sharing the gospel with kids and you have a lady like this following you around saying, these are servants of God telling you how to be saved. Imagine how you would feel, the embarrassment, the awkwardness of it all. And here are Paul and his companions in Philippi seeking to proclaim the gospel in the city and you have this woman trailing around shouting at them. But do you see the two things she says about them? which are true, servants of the Most High, and are telling you the way to be saved. These were true statements about who they were and what they were doing, but they came from a woman who had a spirit who enabled her to tell the future. And this recognition by the spirits was not uncommon, is it? If you take the gospel accounts of Jesus, there were several occasions, weren't there, when people who were demon-possessed met Jesus and recognized who he was. Let me give you two examples. One in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is in a place called Capernaum, a town in, in Galilee. And it says this, that on the Sabbath, he began to teach the people, and they were amazed at, teaching, at his teaching because he had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon and evil spirit. He cried at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then in Luke 88, we have another example where Jesus is met again by the man in the tombs. Remember, for a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high? I beg you, don't torture me. There is, you see, throughout the scriptures, isn't there, particularly in the gospels, an awareness by demons and demonic forces of Jesus and his mission. What he came to do, they knew. The spiritual forces, the element behind, know what's happening with who Jesus is and why he came when others, like the religious, didn't receive who Jesus was or didn't accept what he had come to do. And here we have Jesus' apostles, recognized by this spirit and this woman who had the spirit in her and they followed Paul for days until verse 18. Do you see it there? Where it says, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Paul's annoyance here literally means he became disturbed by her words and shouting as it continued. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's a little bit inconvenient to have someone shouting at you as you're going down to town or trying to tell somebody, isn't it? So it wasn't just for his personal. Why do you think it was? Could it be that he was concerned for the mission in Philippi, that this could have an adverse effect on it with the spirit shouting out? Perhaps Paul's concern was for the converts, that they would be associated with the fortune teller or the making of money through these means. Maybe he was concerned for the mission and this church in its infancy, that it wouldn't be diluted or seen that it connected with this money-making exercise or this evil spirit. But the most dramatic thing about this confrontation is that Paul, in the name of Jesus, delivers this woman from the bondage of this spirit. There's a lovely play on words here in these verses. The owners made money out of her. And here we have the spirit leaving her, being taken out of her. They made money out of her. 
But Jesus, in his name, released her from the spirit. What an amazing account of two people. Lydia and all her wealth and means. This other woman who controlled nothing and owned nothing. And yet released from the demon possession in the name of Jesus. But do you see the fallout or the consequences of this girl being delivered in the name of Jesus in verses 19 and 24? Do you see what happens? The slave owners realize their money-making days were gone. And they cause trouble by seizing and dragging Paul and Silas into the marketplace to face the authorities. The charge they bring against him are that they're throwing the city into uproar by advocating customs that we, Romans, do not adhere to. Do you notice how there's no mention of their real motivation? The spawns is gone. The money-making machine has come to an end. And so they're bringing Paul and Silas before the city chiefs. And in verse 22, things escalate. Do you see it? And the mob join in the attack. And the magistrates order that Paul and Silas be stripped and beaten with rods. This would have been a severe flogging. And it wouldn't be the only one that Paul ever gets in his life. After they're beaten, they're thrown into prison, and the guard is told, watch them. And he places them in an inner cell in stocks. I guess there's much for us to learn in this little fallout or consequences of the gospel's impact. Because there's much for us to learn about how often a reaction or kickback when the gospel impacts a place. The gospel has consequences. And maybe for some of you here, it's had consequences for family, where you're not as connected with them as you once were because the gospel has come into your life. Maybe it's at work where you're ostracized, where they treat you as the good living one for some reason, and so you're isolated. Or maybe it's among friends. Because what we see here is the consequences of the gospel making an impact on this lady, impacting the welfare of the city, And I guess we see this played out today in many ways, don't we? Where we see Christianity is seen as not a good thing for society or public life. Often the impact of the gospel means conflict with the existing culture and ways. But in this case in Philippi, these slave owners were motivated because their pockets were impacted. There is no rejoicing or joy found in the fact that this girl has been set free from bondage. She no longer is owned by the Spirit. But do you notice in our, fourth, in our third individual, the fourth point, that the fallout in the city meant that Paul and Silas ended up meeting with a third individual, namely the Philippian jailer. So we went from Lydia to the slave girl, to the fallout with that slave girl. And because of that fallout and consequences, the two lads are ending up in jail. And who do they meet? the Roman jailer. Cut, bruised, very sore. Paul and Silas are in the prison, verse 23, saying that they're praying and singing hymns to God as the other prisoners listen in. Instead of feeling sorry for themselves, they're praising God. I imagine, were they praising God for the beginnings of this church? Were they praising God? Lord, thank you for Lydia and her household being saved. Lord, thank you for saving this girl from the Spirit and setting her free. Were they singing psalms in the Old Testament and all the while sore and cut backs because of the beating that they received? 
But then we see in verse 23 a dramatic, or four, a dramatic moment. A violent earthquake shakes the whole prison. Chains fell off. Doors flung open. And prisoners are ready to go. And the jailer who's supposed to be looking after him finds the doors open, chains gone. And he's about to kill himself because a good soldier would never let this happen. He was going to do the honorable thing as his training demanded. But then Paul shouts out, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. And you see the impact it makes on this jailer in verse 23 or 29 and 30. He came trembling before Paul and Silas and asks them this question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And could it have been that the jailer was listening to Paul and Silas praying and singing? Could it have been that dramatic event of the earthquake and God at work in his life caused him to call out, what must I do to be saved? But the jailer's question is answered, isn't it? An amazingly profound one. What must I do to be saved? For many today, we think, don't we? I need to clean up my life. I must try and be a good person, live some sort of morally good and upright life, be a good neighbor, and then I hope that this will be enough for me to be saved. And if I can't do that, I'm just lost. I'll live any way I want. Yet Paul, notice how he answers to the jailer in verse 31, how he answers his question. Do you see it there? He simply says to them, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Paul's reply is simple on one level, isn't it? Believe, trust in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Just believe. It's not saying you must have a bit of belief and a bit of doing mixed together in order to be rescued. It is saying by trusting Jesus Christ alone, you will be rescued. And this is the gospel. It is profoundly simple on one level. The Lord Jesus has died for our sins. He paid the debt we owed. And so the way to avail of all that he has achieved and done for us at the cross and resurrection is to trust him alone. Not our own goodness or our acts. In fact, we have to abandon these things in order to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And maybe there's somebody here this evening, you're asking, how am I supposed to be a Christian? How am I supposed to be rescued or saved? Or if a friend tomorrow morning said to you in an amazing dramatic fashion like this over the coffee, tell me, sir, how can I be saved? What do you say to him? Come to Bloomfield Church? Doesn't save you. Might be a good thing. How are you saved? And Paul says, believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in what he has done for you at the cross. Died for your sin. Yes, you're that bad. But he loved you enough to save you and rescue you. And verse 32, see it there, reminds us that the soldier was taught and told more from the word of God. How necessary this is. It does take more time sometimes, doesn't it, with family and friends and individuals and more pouring over the word of God in order to grasp more fully what it means to believe in Jesus, to be his follower. We need to move away from the fact that believe in Jesus and you're saved. Paul, in verse 32, taught him more than that. He explained it, I'm sure expanded it with his family together, explained this is what it is to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple, a lifelong follower of him. And you know what? 
we have proof of this follow-up, don't we? Because the Philippian letter, the letter to the Philippians is there for them to encourage their faith, to strengthen them. And look at the beautiful outcome from all this in verse 33. The jailer washed their wounds and then immediately again we see this, he was baptized and all his household. Paul and Silas are brought home and enjoy a meal with this man and his family. And look at the end of verse 34. They were filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God. He and his whole household. Joy is a mark of a new birth in Christ. It is the fruit of the Spirit that you have come to realize that God has saved a wretched sinner like you and me by giving his only son. It is that joy of knowing the grace of God when all you deserve is his judgment and punishment. It is the joy of knowing that this is a relationship that's going to last forever. And you see it there. He's filled with joy, a Roman soldier. And so tonight, we have three individuals, don't we? A wealthy businesswoman with all the means. A slave woman who owned nothing and controlled nothing. A hardened Roman soldier, probably a retired boy that got a job in the jail. And here he dramatically comes to Christ. And lastly tonight, this is the church at Philippi. This mission to Philippi shows us the power of the gospel to unite, but also to divide. Paul later on insists that the, church, that the magistrates give him a public apology, literally. And it's not for his rights. I think deep down what he's looking for here is that the church would go forward knowing that it, it was done wrong. He had Roman citizen. He shouldn't have been beaten. He shouldn't have been thrown into prison. No trial. And Paul insists on this being acknowledged, I think, because the church was going to be left behind in Philippi and it didn't want it hanging over it. But we see here that Paul's great drive and concern is for this young church and gospel to flourish and grow. These three individuals and their stories highlight the power of the gospel to bring down cultural, social class among different people, doesn't it? Stott again says this, it's hard to imagine a more disparate group than the businesswoman, the slave girl, and the jailer. Radically, socially, psychologically, they were worlds apart. Yet all three were changed by the same gospel and were welcomed into the same church. Can you imagine that? It's presuming the female slave came into the church. I'd love to know who looked after her after the slave traders gave her up. Lydia and all her wealth brought into the local church. The Roman, with all his cultural Romanness going on, brought into the church. But they're united around the gospel, and they're united around Christ. I'm telling you, this should encourage and spur us on in having confidence in the gospel of God, because it changes people. And when it changes people, there are positive and negative fallouts from it. But the beauty of this church in Philippi is that this is God's church. His initiative to save and open hearts and lives. But it's diverse. This morning I had the privilege of being back home in Kilkenny because I was at a wedding yesterday. And I looked around the church. Hungarian, African, Irish. And I look around and go, who would bring all these together? 
And you know what it is? It's the gospel. It's the gospel of our Lord Jesus, bringing wealthy and poor, educated, uneducated, different backgrounds. That's why we read those verses of the great multitude that will stand before God. This is God. And this is what he began in Philippi, but they're united around the gospel. This is what you want to be part of. God's gospel, God's church, here it is beginning in Philippi. And we want the same heart and life for us here at Bloomfield, that our gospel unites us, that our hearts have been opened and we desire this for others as well. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you tonight for your word to us. We thank you for these three cameos of individuals who encountered the good news of Jesus. Father, we thank you that Lydia, her heart was opened to you and she responded. And thank you for those lovely little verses at the very end where it says, after Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them and then they left. Father, thank you that you began a local church there in Philippi. Thank you, Lord, for this story about the female slave being set free. Thank you, Lord, for this hardened Roman jailer asking the great question, what must I do to be saved? Father, we thank you tonight for the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Would you give us confidence tomorrow as we head into work, as we meet friends and family, to know that this is the same gospel and the same message that impacted these three and can have an impact on our family and friends and this city. Father, would you continue to grow your church in this place? Help us, Lord, to hold out this gospel in all its glorious beauty. And Lord, we pray, we pray for that individual that you would open their hearts to receive the message of the good news of Jesus. Lord, thank you for your word to us. May it fill us with joy, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. As we go forth and tell and know the gospel and share it with others, remember these words of Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all both now and forevermore. Amen.